Good morning, good morning. On today's podcast, I have special guest Gregory Offner. Greg's hidden edge is his tenacity and his thick-headedness. Greg is the founder and CEO of Global Performance Institute, a researcher and an award-winning keynote speaker. As the creator of the Tip Jar Culture, Greg helps transform the employee experience, or as he likes to say, take the irk out of work. And his impressive roster of clients includes everything from Fortune 100 corporations to local chapters of associations. Greg also spent 15 years as an internationally renowned dueling piano bar performer, performing professionally on five of the seven continents. And I can't wait to hear more about that. Have a listen now. Welcome to your Hidden Edge podcast, where there's a belief that each and every one of us has a hidden edge, one that could unlock that next level of success in any area of life. Unfortunately, that edge is hidden, tucked away and buried deep underneath layers and layers. In this podcast, we'll uncover the hidden edge of high-performance leaders, executives, athletes, coaches, and authors to open your mind and stretch your frame of reality. If you know you want more, can do more, and be more, then this is the right podcast for you. Let's uncover your hidden edge. Welcome to the show. I am excited to have special guest Greg Offner on the show. Greg, welcome to the show. Jeff, I'm like, I'm pumped up just watching that video, man. That's awesome. Oh, thanks, man. I love it. Yeah, it gets, gets a little fire going. Get that blood boiling, right? Ready to go, ready to get in a great discussion. I'm excited to dive into your hidden edge, tenacity and thick-headedness. One, why is that your hidden edge? And two, what are some ways you've developed that over time? Yeah, when I was a kid, I have a distinct, or I should say I have a distinct memory of when I was a kid being repeatedly told, man, you, you just don't learn, do you? Because uh, I would often make mistakes over and over again. Now, most of these were, were, were behavioral challenges I had growing up. I was diagnosed with ADHD. Okay. Uh, it still kind of poses challenges for me from time to time. But I would often set my sights or, or my intention on something. And despite the nose that I might hear from parents or teachers or, you know, authority figures, uh, or despite my lack of ability to achieve that goal or to complete that task, I just kept going. Okay. Um, and I don't know where it comes from. I don't know if it's inherited, if it's self-taught, if it's sort of, uh, mirrored from maybe people I was surrounded with when I was a kid, but, as, as I got older and as, as we become adults, you sort of learn that when it's channeled properly, that thick headedness and that tenacity can be a real asset. And so that's been my challenge as I've grown and, and matured is to channel it properly because from time to time I can still go off on that other tangent where it's really not helpful and, and, you know, can be a little, little bit problematic. Okay. So when you're growing up, you obviously had this type of resolve, this type of grit, this type of tenacity. Is there a specific example when you went through it and you just said, hey, to myself, I'm, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to do these things. Obviously, you've heard, hey, you don't learn, right? You shared that. But is there a spe specific story that you can kind of bring the audience in on? Yeah. And uh, this is one that I don't really ever get to share outside of a lot of my friend group. When I was in college, I initially started out as a music education major. I thought I wanted to be a music teacher. I had okay. gone to a military school for high school, and the bandmaster there 
uh, I was in the regimental band at Valley Forge Military Academy, had a profound impact on, on my life. Uh, prior to military school, I was more of a sports guy. I, I played music, but sports was my big focus, ice hockey and tennis. When I got into the military school, being there on scholarship in the band, the bandmaster kind of said, no, my friend, you're paid to do this. This is your sole and singular focus outside of academics. Okay. So um, into college, music education major, not going so well. Uh, wound up transitioning into psych and philosophy as my sort of oddly combined major, but was still a musician at heart. Okay. And so I would perform whenever I could um, and wound up dating a girl uh, my senior year who was a musical theater major. Two very different worlds, musical theater and, and, and kind of music, you know, like uh, uh, she was off auditioning for plays and, and doing these long rehearsals and tech rehearsals. And, you know, I would have rehearsal for a performance, but it was it was a lot simpler. Okay. And so I looked at what she did and I thought, man, that's that's kind of crazy. And she would often challenge me to get involved in the world of theater. And I said, no, it's not really my thing. I could do it, of course, you know, but I don't want to. Right. Isn't that our, mm -hmm. our the easy response? I could if I yeah. wanted to, but I don't want to. So I won't. Um, and one day. She called me out in a really intense way, and she said, put your money where your mouth is. Here's an audition up in New York City for this okay. Broadway musical that's coming out. It's called The Wedding Singer. Remember that movie with Adam yep. Sandler, The Wedding Absolutely. Singer? Remember, they turned it into a musical, and she said, there's an audition. Go up. So I thought, all right. I drove up two hours at the time. I was from Westchester, PA, to New York City. Mm -hmm. Found parking, which I think was like $2,000. No, I mean, it was expensive to park, <laughs> right. right? So this, I was committed. I was yep. pot committed because as a college kid, that parking was kind of like all the money I had for the week, yeah? Right. And I, I go to the building where the audition's being held. And I remember, I had never been to a Broadway audition before. It was not what I was expecting. It was this just weird kind of lofty building uh, in, in New York, I remember all the walls were, were brick and they were painted white and there was hardwood floors and all the doors were the black kind of metal doors that you that you saw in grade school. If you went to like an old rundown Catholic school, you know, okay. where they had the one window and inside the window was that wire. So like this was yep. this was my first Broadway audition. And so I'm looking down the hallway and all these people are waiting for different rooms and there's a check in desk. And I go to the check in desk and I tell this person who I'm you know what I'm there to do. And she says do you have your equity card now equity card is is like your union membership in the okay. world of broadway i didn't have an equity card what i had was the receipt for the parking i just paid and the receipt for the gas that it cost me to get up to new york and all the tolls and i thought damn it i am not leaving here until i can sing for somebody and she wouldn't let me into this audition okay so it turned out there was another broadway show joseph and the amazing technicolor dreamcoat now, this has been around for a while, but they were holding auditions. And she said, that's a non-equity audition. If you want to go, go for it. So I said, okay, I really had no interest in being in this show. But damn it, I had paid for parking and gas and tolls, and I was going to sing for somebody. Now, while I was, so now I'm past the desk, right? I'm past yep. the gatekeeper, as we call it in the world of sales. And now I'm into the building. I could roam wherever I wanted. And so I kind of wandered over to where this audition room was for the wedding singer. And I'm listening to all the other guys that are auditioning. And I think I could beat them. Hmm. And I started, I struck up a conversation with this woman who was in line, I guess, auditioning for the female uh, role. 
And she had the last spot of the day. Now, my audition wasn't for another hour or two for this Joseph the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat thing. So I was like killing time like crazy. Okay. And she said, well, I'm the last person. Why don't you just go in? Like, what's the worst that could happen? Is they say, get out. I thought, you know, that's, that's actually a really good idea. So she went in, came out, the door was, hadn't even closed. And I walked through and I said, hi, I'm Greg, you know, give them, give them my headshot. They were so confused because they thought they were done for the day. Right. And I said, look, I know, I know I'm not on your list and I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm not even equity, but damn it. I drove two hours to be here. All I want to do is have you listen to me sing and give me some feedback. I understand you probably can't even hire me for the role, but can you just give me some notes? Do you mind? And they looked at each other. There were three of them seated at the table and they kind of said, okay, yeah, what do you got? Now you have to understand that in the world of auditions, if you make it more than 30 seconds, you, you, you're doing pretty good. Right. You know, they kind of know when they hear you sing. Mm -hmm. I made it through the entire song. And then they asked me to sing another song. They said, do you know anything else? I hadn't prepared anything, but I said, sure. Right. And they said, well, well, what do you know from the world of theater? And I said, oh, I could sing you something from the Phantom of the Opera. That's my favorite. And they laughed. And they said, do you know something more current? And I said, no, not, not really. I'm not really a musical theater guy. I, my, my girlfriend actually dared me to come up here and do this. And so they said, well, what can you do? I said, well, if you let me play the piano, I can sing you a bunch of songs, Billy Joel, you know, whatever you want to hear. Right. And they did. They let me play three more songs. Wow. And then the lead casting director said, I've got to go to another event, but could you come to our offices later this afternoon? And she gave me a slip of paper with the address on it. Hmm. I, I didn't really know what this meant. But later that afternoon in the Bernard Telsey casting office, I performed for about 30 people. I performed several songs on the piano and they asked me to come back and audition for the lead role in a tour of the musical Rent. Okay. Now, most people, I think when the equity monitor would say, yeah, I'm sorry, you can't come in. You don't have an audition. They would say, well, geez, that stinks. But my ADHD brain, my thick headedness plowed me through that audition, plowed me into the next place. And it, it, there's a phrase I heard somebody say, if you can see it, you can be it. Mm. The fact that this major casting company saw something in me, gave me the courage to say, I'm not just some average run of the mill person interested in music. I can take this talent and do something with it. And that gave me the courage, I think maybe even the validation to pursue my career as a professional musician. I really didn't want to do theater. Uh, it was kind of cool that I got in there, but you know, ultimately several months and several auditions later for this, you know, lead role in rent, they said, look, we love your voice, but you have no acting chops whatsoever. You need to go to acting school <laughs> and take some lessons. I, I just didn't want to, I really didn't gotcha. care. Um, but it was that part that these people hear the best singers in the world and they validated that if I were a better actor, maybe I could be among them. Maybe mm -hmm. a lot of, there's a lot of ifs that would have had to happen to land a Broadway role. So I'm not saying I absolutely would have done it, but maybe that was enough. And that gave me again, that, that, uh, validation, that courage to move forward. And, and I had a very nice and very fun career uh, for almost 15 years as a professional dueling piano player played all around the world. That's what an incredible story. One, I love that you weren't able to get in and then you had some time to, to kill. And then wait a second, you, you kind of listened, you thought, wow, I'm, I'm at least as good, if not better 
than those male singers. I need to get in there and having that tenacity to say, okay, I don't have a card. I'm just going to go in and let it fly and take that shot. I mean, that that's incredible. And so many people don't allow themselves to take that shot. They let other things happen. Other things get in their way that stop them. And it could happen one time and they're, they're done. Yeah. Right? It's, Where, this, it's this idea of avoidance versus approaching uh, in psychology. That's what it's called. It's called approach avoidance, but it's that we will uh, run from things we don't want uh, uh, with more vigor than we will run towards the things we want. And so in that instance, it's very easy for people to say, oh, I'll be embarrassed. Mm -hmm. They're going to know that I don't belong here. What if they tell me I'm bad? I mean, these are very real feelings that we all have. Right. I guess maybe, but not me. I just didn't care. I was like, look, you know, I, I don't have a job now. What's the worst? You know, and that, that girl sort of framed it really well for me. She's like, you don't have the part now. Worst case, you walk out of there without the part. You're no worse than you were when you, you walked in the door. Um, and so it is that sort of tenacity and that thick headedness of going, yeah, let's just see what happens. Uh, that's taken me pretty far in life. That thick headedness, that tenacity, when you're faced with a harsh lesson learned with a roadblock, with a failure, right? How mentally do you get past that? What, do you have a couple of things that you always fall back on that would be great for the audience to hear? Yeah. Um, one <clears throat> is reminding myself uh, that, or really asking myself, am I operating out of avoidance or am I operating out of attainment? Okay. Right. Am I trying to get what I want or am I simply trying to avoid the consequences I don't want? And that is really important for me because I lived a lot of my life trying to avoid the things I didn't want. And surprise, surprise, I didn't get the things I did want. I, I landed somewhere in this mediocre middle. Hmm. And I wasn't really happy. I certainly wasn't fulfilled. Even though uh, to, to a lot of my friends, uh, who, when I shared these sentiments, I, um, they said, really? Like, it looked like you were kind of having the time of your life, like li living it up. Right. Um, but that was, all, that was all like an act. Uh, I often say that, you know, during my corporate day job years, I was like the, the world's highest paid actor you'd never see on a screen. I was acting like a corporate executive and I did that every day and it was exhausting. Um, and there are a lot of people, I think, probably nodding their heads, identifying with this because you look around at the experience people are having at work, the 79% of employees who are disengaged. That says they're not getting the experience each day that they want to have because that's what happens. Disengagement or engagement is a choice based on the experience. Gotcha. So organizations come to me and, and the first question I often get asked by leaders is, hey, we got an engagement problem. How do we create more engagement? And I say, you don't have an engagement problem. Actually, you have an experience problem. The experience of working at your organization or working with your people day to day is not the type of experience people want to have again and again. And so they choose to disengage. And so for me, that fundamental question of am I avoiding what I don't want? or am I moving towards what I want is one of the places where I start that helps me leverage that thick headedness and that tenacity in a positive way. No, I love, love the 
powerful question you ask yourself, right? Questions are so, so important to ask ourselves. And we so many times are just busy, 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 going, going, going. And we don't pause to reflect and say, okay, is this an avoidance technique or am I looking to attain what I truly want? And love, love that question. So let's dive into experience because you hit kind of hot topic button, right? So many people, 79% aren't fulfilled, aren't excited about what they're doing. So experience in the workplace, and this could be at a Fortune 100 company. It could be at a small entrepreneur shop where you've only got five to 10 employees. What, what are some things from an experience perspective you've been able to help guide other companies and corporations to implement and then raise that level, level of engagement? Yeah. So there's, there's three main principles. And what I do is I use that experience I had working in piano bars all over the world, which are a very unique, uh, ecosystem. Mm -hmm. There's really, we could, you know, you and I could take a road trip and go visit 10 bars and there's a good bet that all 10 of them would have music. You know, right. some would have a radio, some would have a, a mega touch, you know, like where you can yep. select the songs and some of them might have live music. Some of them might have a DJ. And maybe half would allow you and I to, you know, request a song, right, on the mega touch or go up and ask the band to play a song. Unless one of those bars was a piano bar, 0% let the audience choose 100% of the songs. So piano bars is a very unique environment because the audience chooses 100% of the songs. That, that's the idea. A mm -hmm. good piano bar performer uses techniques to draw the audience in. And the first principle that we use is the, is the simplicity of opting in. Okay. So if you're a newcomer to the piano bar, how do you know what to do? We have a little shtick. And to keep it short for time, that shtick encourages people to get a drink, fill out a request slip, and maybe most importantly, leave a generous tip. So the three things that I need you to do if you're visiting a piano bar are have a drink, alcoholic or non-alcoholic, doesn't matter, but I will say the more you drink, the better we sound. <laughs> uh, two, fill out a request slip. That is, that is the, the vehicle for your, your voice to be heard. We want your voice to be heard. This is a participatory all request experience. Okay. And then lastly, of course, tip generously, because if you bring that request slip up to us without something green and presidential, it's not a request, it's a suggestion. So we make it very simple for people to opt in. Mm -hmm. And the way you see this present itself in business are value statements. Okay. That's what we value at the piano bar. Have a drink, make a request, leave a tip. What is a business value? What I found is when we start looking at business value statements, they're very, they're very flowery and sometimes contradictory, but often and almost always impossible to opt into without an interpreter. Gotcha. Yep. So that simplicity being the first principle, making it easy to opt in is something that organizations can, it's not easy, but it's simple for them to make changes uh, to their current procedures so that people can opt in more uh, more easily. And there are two other principles that we go into in the keynote. Uh, the second one is creative autonomy. And the third one is gain sharing, right? So sharing sharing the wins. Um, but in some of the research I've been doing recently, what I, what I also realized is that 
a very important tool for organizations to leverage in terms of creating that experience that people want again and again is loss sharing. Okay. And we see this in what just happened recently with Google. You know, so so Google laid off 12,000 people. Yep, just saw that. And just a day before their CEO attended a 50 person, very intimate and exclusive party where I forget who the performer was that performed, but it was somebody that cost well over a million dollars for that performance. So the question is, no doubt in my mind um, that Google cares about its people. Mm -hmm. But how much does that CEO make? How much those board members make? How much does the senior leadership team make? Did they do everything they could to spread that loss or whatever the cause was of needing those layoffs amongst the entire organization such that people didn't have to lose their jobs, but maybe everybody just took a little bit of a collective hit. Mm -hmm. And you see this type of behavior in um, clans, right? C-L-A-N, so like like Scottish clans, right? It's like Clan McGregor, right? You know, if you want to think about it like that. Um, Clans operate in a way that uh, is, clans operate for the collective good. Gotcha. And what you see in hierarchies is this very top-down, push the loss down to the lowest common denominator. And this is why many businesses see that 79% disengagement rate is because people have said, I don't trust that management is going to do what's in our best interest. Right. I think they're going to do what's in their best interest, push it down to the senior leadership. They're going to do what's in their best interest. And then they're just going to keep pushing it down, 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 down until the people that can't do anything about it. And that just doesn't fly anymore in today's transparent culture. So as important as gain sharing is sharing, you know, when we win, Mm -hmm. everybody wins, right? When we lose, everybody should lose. And not just, you know, just just so we're not calling out Google, like how many organizations tell their employees, oh, we had a rough year. We're not able to give you salary increases. Right. And yet the senior executives walk away with a nice fat bonus package. Yep. Yeah, hap- happens all the time. And and I love that concept of, of loss sharing. And I forget what book it was in, but it was a very similar story where instead of just cutting 12,000 people, the executives didn't take a bonus, didn't do something. And, and they were able to save and keep everybody on staff. And it actually, uh, it might've been in Simon, one of Simon Sinek's books, but it, 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 had the culture just invigorated and they, they were engaged and inspired and they did amazing things kind of out of that. So Nintendo is a good example. I don't know if that's in Simon Sinek's book, but in 2011, uh, the CEO of Nintendo and all of the board executives took a 50% pay cut so that they could avoid layoffs. Mm -hmm. And Nintendo is one of the most successful gaming platforms out there right now. I mean, almost everybody's kid I know has a Nintendo switch, even some adults, right? So, Nintendo is clearly doing something right. Mm -hmm. And yet they were able to leverage that principle of loss sharing. And when asked about it, the CEO said, I don't believe that our people would have the confidence and courage to develop and innovate the best games in the marketplace if they were worried about losing their job every time we had a challenging year. Wow. What a powerful statement. I love it. Awesome. Greg, where can, uh, where can people find you? Where can people look you up? My website, gregoryoffner.com is the best place to start. It'll tell you all about the work that I do. And I try to make it very easy to connect with me there. But if you're more of a social media type person, I'm on Twitter and Instagram most regularly at Gregory Offner Jr. Jr. for Jr. 
Gotcha. Greg, thanks so much for being on the show. Jeff, it's been awesome to chat with you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Have an amazing, amazing rest of your day. Rise, fight, love, repeat. Get after it. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to your Hidden Edge podcast. You are now part of the movement, part of a tribe who's on a mission to uncover their hidden edge. We are stronger together. So please share this. Show up with one person in your network that you want to help. Together, we can empower others and connected, we can make a dent in the universe.